Disclaimer, some of the topics discussed in this podcast will involve violent or otherwise triggering content. I'm not a lawyer or legal expert on any of these cases, and all of my opinions are just that. Thanks so much for listening, and let's get on with the show. Welcome to True Crime Updates, a podcast rounding up all the latest breaking news and updates on some of the biggest cases in the world of true crime. Hello, welcome back to another episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. I feel like everyone has just been going through it this week. It's been a really heavy week. I know so many people just going through all manner of loss and chaos, so I hope you're hanging in there. I know it was a full moon last night, but that doesn't even come close to accounting for all the shit that's been going down. So it just seems like it's been a week and would not blame you at all if the only true crime you've been paying attention to is trying to figure out what's going to happen in the season finale of White Lotus. Because same, I feel like that's all I've been wanting to think about is who's going to die, who's going to kill. I honestly go back and forth all the time. I'm currently feeling, and spoiler, if you haven't seen White Lotus, you're going to want to skip through the next few seconds, but I'm assuming you're up to date on it. I do feel like Mia probably has it coming. I don't feel good about her. I don't think they're going to knock off Tanya just because she's the only consistent character. And I know there's a season three. But I don't know, that's that's a big mess for them to all come back unscathed from that like six-way situation will be impressive. I heard somebody speculate that Greg might get pushed off a boat or she might shoot him when he comes back. So that would be really interesting. And then I waver back and forth between, is it going to be Cameron killing Ethan? Ethan killing Cameron? Daphne maybe? Is she going to snap? I don't think Harper's going to kill But honestly, it's anyone's guess. So I've definitely been down that rabbit hole myself, but I pulled myself out of it for a bit to bring you some updates. It's not a super packed couple of past weeks, but we do have some some pretty pretty high profile case updates, some sentencing, some new lawsuits, some, some stuff happening. So let me get you updated on what you need to know in the world of true crime this week. And hope you're taking care of yourself and disassociating with White Lotus or however you need if you need. So let's hop in. Before I get into the updates, I will say, because I feel like I should, because it's great news to mention that Brittany Griner was freed and is, as you're listening to this, back home in the States, which is amazing. Not a true crime case per se, but I mean, it involves somebody being arrested and freed. So worth mentioning, just really happy news. And I was just feeling sick for her and her family. So, so happy to hear that she's back home where she belongs. And yeah, great news there. Also, in terms of little pre-update updates, I'm keeping a really close eye on everything that's unfolding with Catherine McVanua. As of recording this, there's not really any latest breaking news other than that she spent additional days testifying. She's now being called a state witness. So it sounds for all, you know, for as best as anyone can guess, we don't know, but it sure sounds like she's spilling some tea on the Adelsons, and we won't know much more for another, well, I guess it's only like a week at this point, and um, Charlie has a date in, I think it's December 16th. It's not his trial. It's like a pre-trial hearing, but he will, you know, I'll be keeping a really close eye is all I'm saying on this. There's nothing new and breaking that you don't know other than if you missed it, Catherine Magbanoa has been testifying for the state and everyone's assuming she's spilling everything she knows about the Adelsons. She's like super granny smiley in her latest mugshot, if you saw that, which was really interesting. If you're into this case, I recommend the Facebook group Justice for Dan. 
it, it's very extensive. It's kind of like my first thing I check if I'm looking for updates on this case, honestly. It tends to post things. It just is like a good amalgamation of all the news about this case. Whoever runs that group is really on it. And yeah, they posted this compilation of all of her prior mugshots where she's like super somber, frowning. And then this most recent one the other week where she's testifying apparently, and she's like grinning. So do with that as you will. Thought it was interesting. Also keeping tabs because I know y'all are invested as I am in the case of Paul Flores and his sentencing. His sentencing has not happened yet, but he was convicted. And he's going to be sentenced. The latest is he's going to be sentenced on March 10th. It was previously December 9th, which would literally be probably tomorrow or today, whenever you're listening to this. But it's now March 10th. And so he was found guilty of first degree murder. But that will happen on March 10th. I'm not sure if this is going to be broadcast or not. But you can, you know, no doubt that Chris Lambert of the Your Own Backyard podcast will be tweeting it. He'll be he'll be on it. So if you're not already, follow him on Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. Okay, so let's hop into our actual updates. We have a couple handful today. And first, and the probably biggest, is that Sonny Balwani, so if you don't know, he was the COO of the failed blood testing lab Theranos scam run by Elizabeth Holmes, had his sentencing just yesterday at the time of recording this. She was previously sentenced just a few weeks ago to 11 and a quarter years in prison. His sentencing yesterday, which is interesting, was total stark contrast to hers. There was a line around the block for hers. People were like clamoring to get in. Nobody showed up to his. It was pretty much him. It was silent. He didn't even speak. He didn't make a statement. But he was sentenced, interestingly, to 13 years in prison, so a little bit more than her. And that's for his involvement in this scam and the 12 counts of fraud that he was convicted of. So fraud and conspiracy counts. She was only convicted of four counts, interestingly, even though she was the founder. She was, and his attorneys tried to really state that, like, you know, she was the ringleader in this. He was in the background. He wasn't seeking the fame and the fortune and the recognition that she was. He's not a danger. He's done good behind the scenes for many years, blah, blah, blah. Didn't take. Um, he still ends up getting two additional years from her sentence. His lawyer said they plan to file an appeal. That's to be expected. And again, really tried to say that like this guy is not the one you're after, but it didn't work. So he was sentenced and he's supposed to actually turn himself in earlier than her in March. And we'll see what happens because now we're kind of waiting on both of their appeals. Things are moving forward on that note a little bit with Elizabeth Holmes' appeal, which we knew would happen. And um, she's trying to avoid prison. So her team has filed this notice of appeal last week, which isn't the actual, like, trial. Of course, this will take some time. But they have till March 3rd to officially file their opening brief. But basically, they're saying she's not a flight risk. She's not a danger to the community. And that if she was going to have fled, she's had many chances and would have by now. They said, quote, she has strong ties to her partner and family, including her son and soon-to-be-born child, which, sure, who doesn't have ties to their family? I don't think that's personally going to make much of a difference. Like, I'm sorry, you also chose to get pregnant twice when you knew you were potentially going to prison, which I just can't get past. So we'll see what happens with that. This is such a weird little like footnote to all this, but Senator Cory Booker, who I really want to like sometimes, but he makes it difficult 
has apparently written a letter of support on Elizabeth Holmes' behalf that he submitted to the judge. Like, I really want to like him, but just sit down, dude. This is not, this is not your realm. And if it is, I'm troubled. Like, how do you personally know her? That's sus. So I'll keep you posted on what happens with that, with both of their appeals. It's kind of, I guess, going to kind of be a race since they both are supposed to be surrendering them themselves pretty soon. I don't have a sense. I'm not a lawyer of like how long that's going to take to get together and if there's any possibility of them not having to go to prison in the spring. But they're at this point, they're both set to for a long time. Speaking of people who should be in prison, Bill Cosby has just been sued by five women in a new lawsuit alleging sexual assault. So brief recap, if you've been living under a total rock, the Cosby Show actor Bill Cosby went through a whole slew of lawsuits and was found guilty on counts of aggravated indecent assault back in 2018, sentenced, but then ultimately he was let out after just three years of his 10-year sentence. Not because of good behavior or anything like that, because of a violation of his due process rights. And the Supreme Court actually was asked to review this decision, but declined, no surprise, in 2022. So that gets us up to now with this new lawsuit that was filed on Monday. And interestingly, NBC Universal is actually named as a co-defendant in this case. They're, um, Basically being, it's, you know, the, the people who filed this say that they are negligent, that they should have known what he was doing, that the network should have, you know, seen what was happening here. And I guess at the very least, they like allowed his abuse to continue, essentially. So five women filed this lawsuit. And the only reason they were able to, which I think is really interesting, is because there's this new New York state law that just went into effect that temporarily suspends the statute of limitations that used to exist for for cases like this for older sexual assault claims. So they were able to file this, um, which is really interesting and I think really good. I had honestly, I don't like follow this super closely, but I sort of assumed that he was scot-free, that he wasn't going to, you know, see the inside of a courthouse again. But because of this new it's called the Adult Survivors Act, this new law, which just came into effect like days ago, or I guess weeks ago in November. Yeah, it suspends the statute of limitation on some sex crimes, which permits victims to file a claim within a one-year window. I'm getting this from an article at salon.com. So that's that's really interesting. And we'll see what happens with this. I hope something, because just it's really infuriating that he's out just like scumming it up and like just free because I think like we all know I mean he's had upwards of 60 women claim that he drugged and assaulted raped them over the decades with pills and alcohol like 60 women to so to think that he's just out living his life is really infuriating so we will see what happens but that was just filed um I think just today or yesterday at the time of recording this so he's 85 now. Yeah, he was convicted back in 2018, but let out in 2021. So I really hope they get this guy back where he, in my opinion, belongs. And then another story, this one's so sad, but it's always, I mean, it's sad, but it's encouraging to hear these stories of genetic genealogy cracking previously super cold cases that have gone unsolved for decades. We have another one of those this week. Actually, the longest continuously investigated homicide in the history of the Philadelphia Police Department 
has just been solved. This, um, the police have just released the name and identity of this murdered child from the 50s who was only four years old. So sad. He was known as the boy in the box for all these decades. And thanks to genetic genealogy, which, you know, links up, like, it basically relies on people's self-submitted DNA through things like Ancestry and 23andMe, and it's able to link. And I, caveat, I'm going to link to this really great article because every time I read about a genetic genealogy case, I'm like, this is so complex. This kind of stuff does not make sense to me, but I wish it did. I'm going to link to this really great article that the New Yorker put out that I did read, but I need to reread that, you know, New Yorker writes these articles that are like books. So it's insanely long and in-depth, but if you have the time, it's a really great read. It follows this one genetic genealogist, Cece Moore, especially, who's just known for just like, she's solving so many of these cases that police and investigators haven't been able to solve for decades. And she's solving them in like two hours on a Saturday afternoon. So it follows her and explains the process and the science of genetic genealogy really well. But my incredibly limited understanding of it is like it really does rely a lot on these DNA databases on things like Ancestry and 23andMe. And in this case, it was able to take this little boy who's unidentified and link his DNA through that to surviving family members. And it in this case, linked him to a, quote, prominent family in Pennsylvania and his parents are dead. This happened, you know, in the 50s, but he does have living relatives, including siblings. They haven't released their names or anything, but they've released the boy's name. Boy's name. His name was Joseph Augustus Sorelli, and he was found on the side of the road, beaten and naked in a cardboard box. And until now, no one knew who he was. He just was buried in this unmarked grave. No one knew his story. So this group of retired and former law enforcement professionals has been working on this. And yeah, I was able to trace his DNA to this family and figure out who he was. And that's really all the, informa the information I could get. I don't think they're releasing a lot more at this time. It's super fresh. And they're still searching for his killer. So now we know who he was. We don't know what his story was. That's the part they're trying to figure out now. But we at least have a name for this poor kid. And um, they're searching for his killer. And the Philadelphia Police Department actually has a $20,000 reward and a tip line that's live right now. So I'll link to that in the notes just on the off chance that anybody listening knows anything about this case. Please report it. That would be amazing if this gets solved. All right. So it's short and sweet this week. I do have a few media recommendations aside from the White Lotus, which I feel like I guess that is true crime. That's true crime adjacent for sure. It's a murder. Such a good show though. I honestly can't get over it. I've been listening to the soundtrack while I work out like a weirdo, but I would love to hear. That would be fun. If you want to email me your thoughts on who's killed, who's killed, who's doing the killing. By the time, you know, this is out, we'll only have a couple more days and then we'll finally know. But I do have a couple other media recommendations for you in case you're looking for something to stream or listen to. Okay, so first is Glennon Doyle's podcast, We Can Do Hard Things, which is not normally something I recommend uh, to do with true crime, but actually, and I haven't heard this episode yet because I just saw it pop up, but I plan to listen to it tomorrow. She just did a recent interview with Sarah Edmondson of Nexium. I mean, I don't want to say of Nexium. She's she was formerly in Nexium, the sex cult led by Keith Ranieri of the amazing, probably best ever documentary I've ever seen, The Vow on HBO. Um, and this episode is all about cults, kind of how like women can get sucked into cults and like. Yeah, it just sounds really interesting. So that podcast interview with her is out. She's been really outspoken ever since she left 
Nexium and, you know, like has her own podcast now. And so, yeah, she is an actor, podcaster, author, and cult recovery advocate. So check that out on We Can Do Hard Things. It was the episode from December 6th. And then additionally, um, I have not also seen this yet, but I just saw that Netflix has this new murder documentary out. It's called Crime Scene, The Texas Killing Fields. And this is about four women who were murdered in this same stretch of kind of abandoned interstate outside of Houston, Texas, where apparently 30 women have been found dead over the past handful of decades, which is wild and highly disturbing. But these four in particular all had really just a lot of similarities. They were all found murdered the same way, posed the same way, which leads people to believe this is the doing of a serial killer who's yet to be identified. So it's four cold cases. Um, it focuses, this documentary focuses on the stories of Heidi Fi, Lauren Miller, Audrey Lee Cook, and Donna Gonsolin. Gonsolin, I hope I'm saying that right. So that's out on Netflix now if you need something new and murdery to stream. Those are my recommendations. Um, I guess it's just, yeah, it's a shorter week. I have just been focused on watching the new Harry and Meghan documentary and thinking about nothing but White Lotus and just trying to get this through this week because it does seem like it has been fraught. So I hope things lighten up after this. I hope everyone is doing okay. As always, please rate and review if you enjoyed this. If not, feel free to not. That's cool. We don't need, we don't need that. Um, but no, if you have any feedback for me, actually someone had some really great feedback in a semi-negative review that they didn't appreciate me citing Crime Junkie, the podcast, as a source, which I actually really appreciated and thought was a good point. And I always try to use more reputable sites and articles like, you know, The New Yorker or New York Times or, you know, whatever. And I'm going to make a more conscientious effort to be even better about that. And I think this person had a good point that Crime Junkie has come under a lot of fire recently. And I don't know enough or listen enough to Crime Junkie. I mean, I do now and then. Um, but I don't follow them closely enough to have like a really hard and fast opinion on all this. So I would love to hear your thoughts if you want to send me an email at True Crime Updates about your opinion of True Crime Junkie. They're such a biggie, but they have come under a lot of fire for plagiarism, allegedly. Um, yeah, people really not being thrilled with like the work they're putting out. And so I will make an effort moving forward not to sort size them because, yeah, it's sloppy to site a podcast. If you're another podcast, I totally get that. They are just such a, they loom so large in the field of true crime and they've put out such a huge body of work, but I understand people have concerns with that body of work. And it's unfortunate because it's like the two biggest true crime podcasts out there. My Favorite Murder and True Crime Junkie are now sort of tainted with like scandal for various totally different reasons. So it's just interesting. But yeah, I always appreciate your reviews and really do take them into account. And aside from when it's something like my voice, because sorry, that's just my voice. And I just don't see people doing that about men's voices, just saying, um, or about my political opinions, because I'm not going to tone those down. But if it's something like that, that I can improve on, I always try to. So I appreciate your reviews. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time. 